at risk of sounding like someone who does nothing but watch movies and listen to music, since I have so many pop culture references for you, this one is outdated, so I at least get a little bit of credit for not knowing everything that's the latest, but I was thinking about, uh, can I say it's one of my favorite movies? I'm just thinking about the content. It's probably not great for me to say that, so I didn't say that. But uh, I was thinking about a scene from Forrest Gump when uh, a very young Forrest who is, you know, needing leg braces and things and, you know, intellectually isn't with all of his peers. Uh, Forrest's mother, being a great mom and being one who's going to wholeheartedly raise this child, uh, I'm getting uh, a low-end ring up here. I don't know if you're hearing it out there or not. but um, she's, She looks at Forrest and she says, Now listen, Forrest, you're no different from anybody else. You hear me? And then the very next scene, she's sitting in the principal's office and he goes, Your boy, Mrs. Gump, he's well uh, different. Well, we're all different in our own way, she says. So on one hand, remember for us, you're no different from anybody else. And then we're all different. In that one little, like, I don't know, 30-second exchange in that movie, I think M- Mrs. Gump is uh, describing the, the confusion that happens with us thinking about being different. You know, we think that the pressure to try to blend in is an adolescent thing. So we spend so much time with our children trying to say, this is, you know, it's okay to be different. It's all right for you to stand out. And we want to instill that in them. They don't necessarily have to go with the flow on everything. And in fact, you know, so if, um, like another one of my favorite movies, The Conehead says, if everyone were to jump in the Petumius Cauldron, would you jump also? Right? Thank you, nerds, for that chuckle. Just be glad I didn't do it in Conehead voice. So. But the point is, is that as parents, we're trying to tell our children, embrace being different. I don't want you like everybody else because everybody else gets you in trouble, right? If you just go with the flow. And so we think that somehow we'll grow out of that um, pressure to want to just fit in. But if we're being honest, we just got more sophisticated with the fact that we really do like to blend in. It's not a lot of fun for us to stand out, even as adults. And we start to uh, appreciate people that are even in the public eye that seem to be truly doing it their own way because everyone's out trying to out-unique the other person, right? Uh, You know, if I I dress differently, if I do this over here and stuff, maybe I'll stand out and I'll sell a million, uh, you know, copies of my single or something like that because I wore a meat suit or something. I think someone like, like Lady Gaga did or something like that, if I remember correctly. Or weird stuff to be different but just for the sake of being different, probably for some financial gain or something along those lines. And so when we see somebody who's not necessarily caught up in that, but still doing it their own way, we kind of appreciate it. And I heard this, I'm going nuts with all my pop culture references just in my introduction, and we'll get into Bible in a second. But I just heard a story from the Grammys that just happened a week or so ago, a couple weeks ago now, maybe. And Adele, who's everybody's favorite singer, and everyone just loves her, and they love her personality and all this stuff, and she kind of you know, seems to be the person who's doing her own thing her own way and doesn't really buy into a lot of the pressure where you have to do this or that. 
And so I think a lot of people love that, and they also happen to think she can sing okay too. So there's that kind of thing going on. But she, instead of going to some, they do these after parties after the Grammys. I've been invited to a few of them myself. Just <laughs> shrug, no. Uh, you know, but it's one of those things where it depends on how cool your party is and what celebrities show up and whether or not you'll be talked about in the headlines the next day and everything. And so Adele being Adele, Someone can land her at one of her, their after parties and everything. They had Adele at their party. So instead of going to an after party, Adele went to a, a burger joint and got like In-N-Out Burger or something and went and had her, she was like, I don't want to deal with all that sort of stuff and went and had fast food instead. That's very un-Hollywood, by the way. And I just thought that was interesting, you know, because somebody like her jumps out at the in the public conscience because she doesn't seem to be locked into all the same things everyone else is doing. I don't know whether or not that's her intent. I don't know her personally. I don't uh, care to judge her motives. It just seems that at the moment, at this stage of her career, she seems to be standing out for someone who's just going to do what she thinks is the right next thing for her to do and how she wants to do it and then pull it off and it seems to be going okay for her, at least you know, in the short term. So if there's anything that the scriptures or the gospel of Jesus Christ offers people is the opportunity to be different. It's the opportunity to stand out like a sore thumb. It's the opportunity to do exactly the opposite of all of what the rest of culture is doing. And so there's that piece of that that we admire. We like to see somebody actually doing it, sticking to their convictions and being their own person, their own man, their own woman, doing their own thing, regardless of what culture is saying. And so the gospel says, well, I've got that for you if you want to follow a unique path. You know, biblical Christianity has that all over the place. If we really look and see how the scriptures spell out what it means to be a Christian and how to live a kingdom life in this earth it has that. But at the same time, it has this uh, fearful part or this unsettling opportunity because we don't necessarily like to be the ones standing out. We just appreciate it when someone else is doing it. I like the fact that Adele went to an In-N-Out burger, but if I was in the midst of selling millions of records and all this kind of stuff and somebody wanted me at their party, I wonder how much of that would go to my head. I'd be like, well, I've got to show up. At least I'll be the headline tomorrow. I don't know if I really want to stand out that much. I'm not sure how comfortable I am with that. So when we see the real Christian calling, what we've said already is a true biblical Christianity, we begin to understand just how different it is in thought and in practice from everything that you and I have been doing since the day we were born. The difficulty or the conundrum in this is that we typically want to join something we like belonging to something that's bigger than us we like coming into a church for instance and feeling like okay i'm not the only weirdo <laughs> these people sing like i do they study the same bible i do they probably have the same struggles at work or at home that i had and so it gives us some comfort i'm locked into something that's bigger than me there's a movement i get to contribute in but see the thing is is biblical christianity is more than just a club to belong to and that's why we teased earlier about having the hats with the the grand poobah you know tassel and all that kind of stuff we could say this is a great place to belong to and leave it at that and make sure we have all kinds of activities and things for people to tie up their lives with and everything. And there'd be a sense that if you didn't know anything about the, the true gospel of Jesus Christ, you'd probably figure out how to fit in 
in an atmosphere like that because it's fun. I get to know people and they're doing things and they're occupying their time and all this stuff. It's the, the fact that we are on a mission to introduce a lost and dying world to Jesus Christ is what gives us all purpose and meaning and really what makes a church stay together for the long term. The clubs come and go, but until you're locked into a mission that is actually acom- accomplishing something, then it, it, the emptiness will eventually surface and the organization will eventually fold and collapse. So we want to belong to something bigger. There's a part of us that wants to belong to the club. But the problem is on the other side of this is that true Christianity calls us to a thing that makes us stick out like a sore thumb for a time too. So it's like, yeah, come on in. Be a part of the group. Be a part of the club. Now go out and be weird. (laughs) Go out and stick your neck out. Go out and accomplish something that your neighbors or your family members are going to say, you joined a cult, didn't you? So you've got that balance going on. It's difficult. And it's especially not easy to subscribe to when the pressure is starting to build, when the heat is starting to get turned up. Remember we said as we've been studying Peter's letter to the the scattered aliens and strangers throughout, is that Peter, as the author of this letter, knows better than anybody else how difficult it is to maintain a level of confidence and a willingness to stick your neck out when the persecution hits. Peter is the one that we saw on the front page news that he was denying Jesus three quick times in a row, just like Jesus uh, uh, prophesied that he would. And his his, um, failure is there for all of us to see. And even remember that detail of it recorded the fact that as soon as he did it the third time, just like Jesus said, Jesus, Jesus just looks over and gazes at him, like piercing a hole right through his soul that, see, you denied me and I said that you would. And we all feel the weight of Peter's failure. And hopefully what we feel in that is a recognition of like, that probably would have been me too. You know, if we really see what Peter went through in his failure, very rarely do we look down our nose and say, what a slug. How could he have done that? The Bible does such a great job building up the drama and helping us understand how intense the moment was. And how scary the situation and how bleak it looked because their, their leader, their king, their Messiah and Lord is being beaten like a mouse. He's, just, he's being uh, leveled, he's being ridiculed, he's bre- being minimized. And all the human doubt comes into uh, the apostle's head like, maybe this isn't going the way that he thought it would. This is, I know he said that this would happen, but now that I see it, maybe he's not in control of this. And I think Peter does what all of us would have at least on the very minimum surface have been tempted to do. I would love to think that I wouldn't have done it. And I think you would love to think that too. Fortunately, at this point in our lives, at this point in the story of the kingdom moving through the world, we haven't had to face that kind of opposition. We haven't had to face that kind of difficulty or drama. But it's very difficult for us to even subscribe to living a different kind of life as it's getting worse. And that's why we need to heed Peter's words because he knows better than anybody else that difficulty. 
So he's going to challenge his reader's normal human desire to just fit in or slide under the radar in times of persecution with a key thought in the next section that we're moving through in 1 Peter. If you've missed our first few um, sermons on this, they are available online at fefchurch.org. And um, you can, there's a big sermon button towards the bottom of the page. You just open that and you'll see uh, the last several weeks um, that are from the text of First Peter chapter 1. So we move on this week. We go into our next um, uh, two paragraphs in the rest of chapter 1. But before we start reading through from 13 on, I just want to highlight what I think is Peter's salient point, the thing that he's really trying to hinge everything else he's saying on, on two verses. Beginning in verse 15, it says, um, and, I, and I'm sorry we keep coming into the sentences halfway, but I think you'll, you'll pick up the gist. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. I've been using the word different a lot this morning. Holiness has so much of a a different element to it, but it isn't all that it is. Holy doesn't just equal different. But I'm using different to help us to establish sort of a baseline to receive the rest of this instruction because we have to understand what our very next temptation is going to be. We're going to sit in a sermon like this, as rousing as it's going to be, let me tell you. It's huge. No, not really. Um, but as, 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 as much as we intend when we're sitting here listening to the preaching of God's word or we've just been moved by this powerful worship song or something along those lines and we say, that's it. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to kill it this week. I'm going to live with abandon. I'm going to just give my life to Jesus. I'm sick of living in the shadows. I don't want to live under a rock anymore. They're going to know who I, who I've follow they're going to know who i belong to and then the next thing that hits us is the part of our normal routine that usually kind of quiets that down or intimidates us all over again or something so the reason why i'm starting off with this discussion about being different is because that's usually the thing that slays us right out of the gate i don't want to stand out like a sore thumb and you know i am in a church and i'm here most of my life (laughs) i didn't say that right i'm here most of my working life and uh, it's, it's not as common for me to brush up against um, people that don't think like me. Even people in the church that aren't maybe living out their faith as faithfully as they would like to, and they come and ask me for some guidance or some prayer or some direction or something, there's still a baseline that what I'm about to say isn't stupid to them or it isn't weird to them. For the most part, they're going to struggle with, I just don't know how to do that. So most of my life is spent talking to people that get it. They're just trying to figure out how to do it. So I want to say this as sympathetically and as compassionately as I can, that you are called to an existence, even me, but you are called even more so to an existence that requires you to get over this fear of being different, to get over this hang-up that we have about not wanting to stick out. I don't have time this morning to go into the other side of the spectrum, which is some of you love to stick out so much that you offend the gospel of Jesus Christ because you make it more about you being obnoxious in public than about God's message. I don't know who you are, but, but the person around you does. <laughs> sorry, that's not very nice. But that happens. That does happen. We have those. But I have no problem being different. Everyone around them is going, yeah, we know. Tone it down. 
So I think Peter is knocking it out of the park. He says, you need to consider, you need to do holiness because that's who your father is. And like I said, holiness isn't just being different, but that is one of the key pieces because everything that God lays out in the Old Testament to spell out his holiness is saying, okay, children of Israel, okay, my Jewish people, every nation around you is going to see that we don't do things like they do. We are very different. All of the customs, all the rituals are going to speak to how holy God is and how pure he is. But also in that, we're not going to try to look like all the other nations. I want you to stand out. And God has never veered off of that path. So I think in this next section of of 1 Peter, we can pull out a number of ways in which the believer, someone who's exercising true biblical Christianity, can be different. Or they are called to be different or expected to be different based on Peter's instruction. And remember who these words are coming from. That he is saying, look, as it gets worse, because remember, that's part of the warning, the reason why Peter's writing to all these people, it's about to get worse. So as it does, let's get over ourselves, let's not worry about being different. He says, trust me, I know the punishment that comes with that. I don't want you to go through the same shame. So we pick it up in verse 13 to come up with our first difference. In what way are God's people called to be holy? Verse 13 says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought uh, to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's that phrase again like we heard um, in verse 7, the revelation of Jesus Christ. When the world finally sees who he is, and understands who Jesus really is, this is what we've been studying under Pastor Bill's teaching in the the book of Mark, is, is seeing who Jesus really is, not the one that the world has kind of painted him out to be. As we see who Jesus really is, then there are some things that you're going to have to be prepared for. And he says, so prepare your minds for action. And, and I, I, I hesitate to pick on every single word in this verse, and I don't think we will, but that's a very key difference. When our entire world is thinking about vacation, whether they say it out loud or not, when our entire world is thinking about rest, when our entire world is thinking about the path of least resistance, don't spell out for me something that's going to require more discomfort. Don't give me some, some challenge that's going to make it harder and harder. I mean, when people actually submit to a challenge and see it through, we make a reality show out of it because it's so unique. The world wants a break. The world wants to chill out. The world wants a second home for vacation. The world wants longer trips. The world wants to win the lottery. The world wants all those things. So Peter's saying, if you're going to stand out like a sore thumb, which verses 15 and 16 said we're called to do, the very first thing I want you to do is lace up. I want you to prepare for action. Get the flip-flops off and put on the high tops. I want you to prepare for the game. And we're going to do this in sobriety. He says, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Uh, Peter loves this instruction to be sober. And it brings me back to when we were going through 1 Timothy chapter 3 and we were talking about the, um, the instruction for good leadership in the church that the elders and pastors had a description that was spelled out in Timothy. And it seemed like the recurring theme in all of the, the individual words in that passage in 1 Timothy 3 had to do with balance, had to do with sobriety, had to do with clear thinking. 
and, 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 um, and self-control and those kinds of things. And all of those things are wrapped up in being sober in mind. Now, probably more than uh, we'd all like to admit, right? There have been times where we haven't been as sober as we should. And, uh, and, and there are a lot of people winning the battle at staying sober, and it's a, a real um, encouraging thing to see. And the more that we hear that story, I especially love hearing that here at Faith because it means that we're a place that has their doors open to people coming from all different uh, struggles and all that kind of stuff. And, it, and, I, and I don't know if it's primarily a central, central main thing or something. That's one of the testimonies I happen to hear the most is that people will celebrate how many days, months, or years they've been sober. And so we applaud that, we want to help that, but, but it's not just for the sake of being sober, but to have their lives renewed by the power of Jesus Christ. But we're, most of us are too familiar with that feeling of not being sober. And if we haven't experienced it ourselves, we've seen it in action. And what happens in drunkenness, it's, it's, a, it's a lack of self-control, the words start flying, the things that we're able to sometimes keep trapped in our mind or bite our tongue, now we can't anymore. We used to be able to walk a straight line. Now we can't stay on it. We're stumbling all over the place and everything. So Peter is bringing out this word. He says, if you're going to prepare yourselves for action, don't just be all hopped up with energy and adrenaline. He says, I want you to think clearly. I want you to walk the straight line, to be balanced, to have self-control. He's saying this is going to be very key in everything. Later on in in this letter, in chapter 4, he says, uh, the end of all things is near. This is where he's turning up the instruction here. Tell me that's not a scary phrase. Listen, guys, the end of all things are near. Now, we know in hindsight that was thousands of years ago. But was he wrong? Not necessarily, especially when you look at God's timeline. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may actually talk to the Lord with words that make sense, so that you may actually pray about the things that are close to the Lord's heart, so that you can actually pray for the things that he wants to accomplish, and you're just joining him in concert saying, okay, I want you, Lord, to do the thing that your will is in my life and in the lives of those around me. So he says you need to be sober in order to do that. A little bit later on in this letter, in chapter 5, he says, be alert and of sober mind. Because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Have you ever been or seen somebody in a state of drunkenness not have any fear? And we're all cringing for them? We're, we're so scared because there's no sense of, of safety or danger or any, anything like that. And that's why you know, getting into an automobile doesn't really seem like that big of a decision or walking towards the edge of the cliff isn't, it isn't really that big of a, a challenge for the person who's drunk because the inhibitions are down, the fear level is down. And so Peter's trying to say, look, hey, listen, get your minds clear, start thinking balanced, get self-control about you because you have an enemy that's lurking in your bushes right around the corner. And once he gets a chance to pounce, he's not just going to bite to sink his teeth and he's going to chew you up and devour you. I want you to be appropriately afraid of that is what Peter is saying. So in just this tiny verse in verse 13, where he says, prepare your minds for action and keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So how else are God's people supposed to be different? 
if we're talking about how we're supposed to be using our mind, I would call this that we have a different expectation or we have a different mindset. Our expectation is one that we're going into battle. We have to put our boots on and lace them up. Uh, we have a different um, se- uh, uh, approach to thinking in general where we know we need to keep our minds clear and balanced, uh, wrapped up in this word sober. But we also have to keep a, a hopeful perspective. So he's saying be full of hope. Why? Because, you know, just because the power of positive thinking usually accomplishes more than negative thinking? No. He just spent the first 12 verses of his letter explaining why you and I of all people have the most hope. Because our salvation, if you remember from last week when we said you are here, there's this identity in Christ that can't be removed from his hands no matter how hard you and I try or somebody else tries to pluck us out of his hands. We can't be removed. So he's saying we are so tightly locked in to our salvation and it is secure for all of eternity. He'll go and underscore and emphasize this later on in the chapter. But he's going to say we have so much to be hopeful for that regardless of when the rescue comes, we can know it's coming. And so we stay hopeful. We're hopeful towards this future rescue. Along with sober-mindedness, this is a thought process or a mindset that doesn't give in to temporary drama. Are not our lives consumed by momentary dramas? Gosh, I have so many pop culture references going through my head, and I'm not going to keep doing that to you. But all of our social media tools and all these kinds of things, this is not a, a message for or against them, but just think about how we use whatever's invented. We typically use it for us to get to know what's going on in someone else's life. Even the stuff that we're not necessarily at liberty to know. And, and when we're drawn to it, Somebody wrote a book quite a while ago that our elders and pastors read together. It was a secular book, and uh, Pastor Bill had read it years ago, probably in seminary or something, and found it really helpful for us to understand the flow of information. And it brought us, it was a short little book, brought us way back to the invention of the telegraph and talked about how if, you know, for us, for instance, if we're living in central Maine, before that invention came along, we didn't know about a train wreck in San Antonio. Or something like that. Why would we care? Well, you know, well, because we care about lives and we want to see people, you know, live and everything. Yeah, we have a human capacity for that. But but the point of the book was that human capacity is meant to be localized. It's meant to be focused on the people right under our noses and knowing about all of these things that we can neither touch nor solve doesn't do us any good. And yet with the advancement of technology, we know more and more and more. We walk around heavier and heavier and heavier with greater burdens because there's so many places that we can't go. I'm thinking about, uh, too, the process that typically happens at at wedding times and that kind of preparation. And uh, I got to be honest with you, I miss the regularity that the church used to be asked to participate in weddings and not just our church in general, but we think this is going on in a lot of churches where perhaps this cultural lackadaisicalness to marriage and everything is starting to really hit home and our younger generation just isn't really pursuing it as heavily as they used to and stuff. And um, what I used to love is 
when the bride would just kind of have the plan laid out and as the minister, as the officiant of the, of the, of the ceremony, I get to basically just in, help ensure that the bride's wishes were going to come true on the big day. Because guys, you know, they look forward to it and everything and all that sort of stuff. But for the most part, and I know this will sound sexist to some, but for the most part, you know, it's, it's the ladies that have been collecting the bridal magazine since they were young. It's the whole thought about finally get to pick out that dress and do this kind of thing. And that's great. You know, I think it's a beautiful thing, especially uh, seeing how um, infrequent that is now. And I was starting to notice in my time here at Faith, I was noticing less and less brides coming in with an actual game plan or real, real wish list. And they were saying more things like, I haven't really had time to think about it much. And I didn't say anything to them. I didn't want to embarrass them and stuff. It wasn't because they didn't want to be married. They loved the person they were getting married to. But I, just to me, I felt like there was this cultural shift that was hard to accept. That the beauty and anticipation and sort of freaking out and everything that's so great about marriages was uh, was starting to slow down. Now, in our counseling, maybe we talked some of this out of them because we would say, look, it's not about just the wedding day. It's about the marriage beyond, and that's what we're focused on helping you. But it didn't matter. Usually, if, if the bride was was had her plans, she was going to still be excited. But from what I've ever witnessed about those kind of environments is that usually in the week leading up to the wedding, there's a ton of drama. They've been planning this thing for a year and a half, and still at the last minute, somebody's aunt's going to come in and try to spoil something. She's going to nitpick about, I can't believe you picked those flowers, and she's had them reserved for six months or something like that. And then there's this, even if there's nothing that can be done, or that there's unnecessary tears shed just before the wedding day. And we would always tell brides, grooms as well, but not if something goes wrong, but when it goes wrong, we're going to roll with it. It's what the pastor told me when Chris and I were getting married, so that when my best man passed out and the cake was burnt and there were bugs crawling on the cake and all those things that really happened in our wedding, um, we just said, he said, we're going to go with it, we're going with it. Because my wife and I, we had the mindset, because we did it on a shoestring budget, but we had the mindset, as long as at the end of the day we're hitched, and as long as the hotel room booking wasn't wasted, <laughs> then it doesn't matter what happens leading up to that. So you're, what I'm getting at here is this. When we anticipate a future event so much, and we'll talk about this next time we get to come back to this passage because we've got to wrap it up, but we anticipate something so much Peter is saying, you know, you hang on to this. You be willing to be different and everything. Prepare your mindset. There's a bigger thing. The little bumps in the road, the little moments of drama don't really slow us down. You know, the, um, just, just the typical nuisances of life. We deal with them. We roll with them. But for the most part, for the believer who is living true biblical Christianity, who has their mind set on the prize, who is looking towards the end, who already has prepared their mind soberly for action, they go, hey, look, I don't expect anything different. This is just life on earth. We deal with it, we roll with it, we move on. The person who doesn't have that mindset, who kept their flip-flops on, who's kind of stumbling around because they can't keep their balance because they're not thinking soberly, Every little hiccup, every little thing. I can't believe she said this about me. I can't believe he didn't promote me. I can't believe blah, blah, blah. And it ruins us, even if just for a moment. Peter's saying, look, we're getting into times where we aren't going to have the luxury to just be like, I can't believe they said this about me on Facebook. Are we preparing for those days now, even if they don't come for another 20 years? 
Are we still willing to prepare for him? Peter wrote this thousands of years ago, and it was still important and relevant enough to the Holy Spirit to record these words and challenge people. And he even said words like, the end is near. The end of all things is near. Who was that for? Just them? It's for us too. So we're going to wrap up our time here, but I think the walkaway point for us just for today is this. If we are accepting that being the Christian is to be different and on a much bigger scale to be holy, which is set apart for the the glory of God, then we have to prepare our minds differently. We have to acknowledge that I am supposed to think different than the guy on the yard at the yard that I work with. I'm supposed to think different than my cousin who keeps wanting to do battle with me over this and that. I'm supposed to think different than my spouse who doesn't want anything to do with the church. I'm supposed to just engage in this and be willing to stick out like a sore thumb. But to ask the Lord for the right temperament, to ask him for the right balance because I am walking in sobriety as I do this. Let's stand and I'm going to ask the men once we close our time in prayer, I'm going to ask the men if you would please stay behind. We have a short challenge for you as well. Just want to pray for these things. God, thank you, Father, for giving us your word. Thank you for helping us to apply even just a little portion of it today. I pray, God, that you would help us to do that which you're calling us to do. Thank you for the faithfulness of these people. Thank you that on a mid-February day that you have your hand moving in the hearts and lives of people in Waterville, Maine and the surrounding area. God, may we be encouraged by that. May we be strengthened for the battle ahead in Jesus' name. Amen.